constantly wrapped up the message. We were talking about the Israelites, and they were waiting. We were talking about you and I waiting, and the things that we're waiting for. And here's what I want to say before we jump in. If you're, if you're waiting, if you're waiting for something, I don't know how many of you are. You're waiting for some change. You're waiting for something to be different. You're waiting for an answer. You're waiting for a surgery. You're waiting for, you can fill in the blank. You need to know this. You're in a bit of a dangerous place. The place you're in is a little precarious because waiting is far more risky than it seems. It feels like it's innocuous, but like we said last week, when you're in the waiting room, some interesting things can happen. So we'll dive in, jump back into Israel's story as related to Paul mentions in First Corinthians, which is why we're here. Before we do that, here's what I want to play out to you. One of the things that we're doing over the next few weeks, we're going to be replacing that chair. We've had these chairs uh, as a church for about 13 years, and some of them, you know, kind of look like it. So um, we're going to begin replacing them, and uh, we're going to try to get that done. So we have uh, some folks that spoke into it, and our staff has uh, given some input as well. And so we've narrowed our chair options down to two different options. They're in the lobby. And uh, in a great discussion almost broke out in between services because we want you to weigh in and uh, we want you to go, you know, given a, a test, sit, I don't know what to call it, um, in, in the lobby, and then share your thoughts about them, okay? Uh, but we're down to two, so you can kind of pick. They're fairly polarizing choices, I think. So enjoy that in between. So do me a favor while you're sitting there, pull out your smartphone if you have one. If you have one, that's funny, isn't it? And so, plug your smartphone, hold it, uh, do this for me, silence it, if you don't mind. We are averaging about two rings a service, so uh, go ahead and silence it. And just kind of hold it and ponder it while we jump into the message. And let me introduce you to somebody. This is Elena Mugden. Elena Mugden's holding a, an archaic uh, artifact. You know, you know what that's called? Anybody know what that's called? It's a flip phone. Do you remember the days of a flip phone? How many of you had a flip phone? How many of you had that? When you were texting, you had to type three buttons for each letter. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. So, it's, you know, I'm sure there's one that's just so in now. Um, and so that's a flip phone. She's holding a flip phone. This isn't an old picture. This is this year because she has committed for this calendar year to not use, look at, make any use of all a smartphone. The reason she's done that is because she won a contest at the end of last calendar year that was put on by Vitamin Water, a Coca-Cola repair company, and they, they asked people about going without, doing without their smartphone. And so she wrote a little essay and kind of entered the contest and said she wanted to try it. And the reason she would want to try it is because, well, she's done it for this calendar year so far, and she has you know, less than three months to go. If she accomplishes this task 12 months without her smartphone, then she'll be given a check in January from Bible Water for $100,000. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Is there anything else in our culture that would even remotely bring about this sort of contest or, or venture from a company than to go without? Your smartphone. I mean, to be fair, in our culture, it's called an addiction. 
I, I don't know how dangerous really a smartphone is. I mean, some people would say that smartphones are, are fairly dangerous, and maybe in our culture you would you would say that this could be the case, or there might be some danger in using a smartphone. These are all real, by the way. Real downloaded videos. Ouch. Yeah, that one deserves a win, right? This is also real. That boy just got baptized, you know what I'm saying? This was on the news, of course. She went in the fountain as well. Yeah, they make them rather waterproof, so it's not as damaging as it looks. That was close. This is closer, though. Right. So that's a bear. And that's a man. The man just saw the bear. That's not as freaky as the man who just stepped on stage. Right. That's going to leave a mark. And pump. There we go. And so apparently they are dangerous. And these videos, of course, you can search the internet, they're filled. They're, these are people that have all their wits about them. They're just moving through life, and they can. Now, there's a pile of videos that I would never show in church because they're so morbid. Way worse than the ones you just saw. But how, how dangerous is it? It's the closest thing that we have in our culture that you and I can quickly identify your connection to it, my connection to it. I desire to always have it. You know, walk into any restaurant, you'll see a family of six sitting at the table. Now I'm talking about one person talking, and every one of them stare at their phone. The closest thing that we can call in Old Testament language an idol. And why would we call it that? And what's that about? And then, of course, this longer word, idolatry, based off this word idol. And why does it matter? Well, this is why we spent time in First Corinthians 10. Early church, Corinthian church, Paul writes to them. And when Paul writes to them, he says this, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors, Jewish men and women, in the wilderness. They're wandering in the wilderness long ago. He's talking about this moment in Israel's history after they've been freed from slavery from Egypt out from under Pharaoh's reign and now they're finding themselves in between freed from slavery but they're not yet to the promised land. They're not there yet. They're kind of in between and a journey that should have taken about three weeks took them 40 years and they wandered through the wilderness. And Paul says don't forget. Don't forget about them. And when he says don't forget, he says for a very specific reason. Because these things to them happen to them as examples for us. He also says they were warnings to us. Now, what in the world does the experience of a Middle Eastern Jewish man or woman, several thousand of them, who eventually became a much larger nation, have to do with us? And why would Paul call it what he calls it? And as they go through this waiting period, and what results from it, well, that's why it's important to me and to you. So you might remember, you know a little bit about the story. They come out from under the leadership, the slavery, of Pharaoh. Now they're a free people, but they're not yet to the promised land. And God is now going to take his people, and he's going to teach them how he wants them to live. They've not yet been their own nation, so they don't have their own laws, they don't have their own rules, they don't have their own government, they don't have their own anything. All they have done is lived under the thumb of the Egyptians and served with their pleasure. 
Now God is going to teach Moses how he's going to create a nation. Israel called his own. So God called Moses up to Mount Sinai several times, actually. Old Testament, the Torah, and he has conversations with Moses. This is where he received the Ten Commandments. It's where Moses was told by God how the festivals would work and how Jewish life works. Everything that you and I would know is the law, over 600 commands about life and living and holiness. Moses receives on Mount Sinai. Now, during Moses' first trip up the mountain, the people are waiting, and they're waiting down at the bottom. They're in the waiting room, not just metaphorically, but literally. Like we said, this waiting room is a very dangerous place. Anytime you have to wait. It's a dangerous moment. It's a dangerous time. Because when we wait, all kinds of things happen to our hearts that we wouldn't have predicted. Here's what happened to them. When the people saw that Moses was, what? So that was probably a few weeks. Okay? So waiting is all relative, isn't it? I mean, when you're waiting in a stoplight, two, three minutes is forever. When you're waiting in a doctor's office, you know, three hours is forever. Right? I mean, you're used to an hour now, right? You're used to waiting now. You just kind of become accustomed to it, and now it gets long. Now these people are waiting at the base of Mount Sinai, off of their camp, and Moses has been up for a few weeks. They don't know when to expect him. They've been waiting so long. They gathered around Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, and they said, Come make us gods who will go before us. And watch what they say. As for this fellow Moses, they act like he just made him. As for this fellow Moses, I mean, he was only the one that enacted these plagues that freaked Pharaoh out. He was only the one that led them out of Egypt. He's only the one that led them through a sea that split in half and they walked through on dry ground. And now he's gone a few weeks and they say, as for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Waiting. Waiting is so hard. So they come to Aaron, these Israelites, and they say, we don't know what's up with God, or we don't know what's up with our leader, so let's make a God. So they gave Aaron their earrings and their necklaces and their articles of gold, and Aaron collected them, and he formed them into, well, I don't know, maybe you even know the story. What did he form them into? What were they? A golden calf. Does that make any sense to you at all? I mean, I like a cow, believe me. I mean, I feel close to worshiping a cow a time or two. When I was at the steak place, I put that bite in my mouth, and I said, holy moly. I was very close to worship, right? But why a calf? And why a golden one? What's this about? And they begin to worship this golden calf. So in the middle of Moses' meeting with God, I mean, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. Moses is downloading the Torah, the law, the key pieces of life and living for all of the Jewish people. God sort of looks over Moses' shoulder and he sees what's going on down below. Here's what it says in Exodus 32. And the Lord said to Moses, you know, see God just sort of wiping his head and going, ah, here we go. Can I believe this is happening, right? Go down because, look what he says, because your people, wait, 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 I thought they were your people, God. Your people who you brought up out of Egypt, I thought you led us out of Egypt, have become corrupt. It's like Moses and God are two parents upstairs, right? And while there's these two parents, this is what happens when God and I were upstairs and we hear a mess. I'd say, go downstairs because your son, and all of a sudden now, our two spawn belong to her, right? And 
this is so funny that Moses and God would have this conversation. Moses does go down. And he looks and he sees the people of Israel partying like it's 1999, circled around this golden calf, and they cannot believe that he's present now. And he watches and he sees and looks at Aaron and he says this. He said to Aaron, now watch the blame again that it is to get shifted around. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such sin? I mean, how did they, how did they convince you to do this? You know why we're here. You know who God is. You know how we got here, Aaron. It's the same thing that you and I experience when we're ready to give up on God. Why would you give up now? We brought you this far. He's taking you through so many trials and difficulties. Why would you now relinquish all that you've been through and follow another way? And Aaron looks at Moses and he says, oh, he's you know, he does the same thing that God does up on time. He rubs his head and says, you know these people? I mean, they're awful, Moses. They're just awful. And of course, they pressured me into this, and that's what we did. In fact, this is what he says. He says, so I told him, whoever has any gold jewelry, just take it off. And, and, and then they gave it to me, and here's the most amazing statement. And so I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now, if you've read Exodus 72, that's how it happened at all. Aaron took it, it got melted down, and he fashioned it into a calf. Why a calf? I have no idea. But he just says to Moses, here's what happened, and there they are. Now, this moment in Israel's history is, is classic, depicted in several big classic movies. It's one of the most embarrassing and incredulous moments. They've just come through under God's mighty hand, and now they find themselves getting allegiance to an article that has no deal to them at all. So remember why this story matters. Don't forget it. It's what Paul said thousands of years later. Don't forget it. Because their story is your story. How? How could that be? Their story is given as a warning for me and a warning for you. How does it connect? And what's the story? And why? Well, what happens there in Exodus 32 with this, this thing that we call idolatry? Stay with me. Idolatry. Such a strong word. What are you going to do today? You know, I just promised some idolatry. I'll probably just do a little bit of that. We would never say that. We don't use that word at all. And if you know the Bible stories and you hear the word idolatry, you think golden calf. If you didn't grow up in church, maybe that's not a familiar memory to you. It's fun over at and hearing this in Sunday school. When you hear the word idolatry, it's just this irrelevant word that has no application to your life at all. But I want us to think about this story differently and sort of pull the sting out of this idea of idolatry. Because here's the truth. When it comes to idolatry in my life, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it's a matter of how. And I know that seems stark and strong and, boy, it's just awful. Our pastor is he's an idolater. But we would say this is true about every one of us, that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it's not a matter of, it might happen or won't, but how will it happen and in what way? And this caricature of a story that happens in the Old Testament 
it almost seems like hyperbole, like he's showing everything. And they're dancing around the golden calf. I mean, the reason it seems that way to us is because we don't connect to a Middle Eastern, multi-theistic culture. But what happened to them, it really is our story. And so here, let's do this. Let's take a few statements and put some handles on this idea of idolatry. And see if some things don't begin to come to mind for you about your life, about your relationships, about your own walk with God, and how these things connect. So we'll say this about idolatry first. Idolatry is usually subtle and seemingly innocent. I know that seems counterintuitive because, goodness, if somebody's going to say, you know, they're an idolater, it sounds like such a stark statement. But for the most part, especially in our culture, it's very subtle when it occurs in our life. And because it's subtle, it sneaks in. In fact, it can be right next to us and we don't even know that that's what's going on. But as it ramps up in intensity or and the way that we view God or the things in our life, then we begin to find ourselves in rough territory. And the most likely time that we'll do this, I'm doing idolatry, suddenly working its way into our hearts. The same thing as Israelites. It's when we're waiting. It's when we wonder if God is really good. Is he going to show up? Is he going to meet our needs? Are his promises true? This is why we sing the lyrics we sing. Because when you wait, you begin to wonder those very things. Does God really want what is best for me? Is God really good? Does he love me the way scripture says? Is he going to take care of me the way all of the lyrics that we sing say he will? So this subtleness of idolatry begins to sneak in. And when it does, then it becomes real. Here's the other statement we'll make. Idolatry often happens when a good thing takes a primary place in your life. This is not always the case, but it's almost usually true. Idolatry happens when a good thing. You remember what it was like to carry all the things that this thing represents in your life? How many of you had a GPS in your car? How many of you remember eight track tapes? Okay, you're really old. And uh, how many of you remember cassette tapes and and folios that had CDs in them, right? I mean, you remember all the various that John and I were talking the other day about all the different things that represented this tiny little device that always sits in our pocket. And of course, it's a very good thing. In fact, the truth, the truth would be this the good as something is, the more likely it is to become a dangerous thing to us. And so, usually, idolatry often happens when a good thing takes a primary place of something in our life. This is a story. Exodus. Jewelry that was nice, maybe handed down from family to family. You would even show it off or tell the story about how you got these earrings or this necklace or this pendant. What it means to you and your family is a good thing. Certainly a door to make somebody, well, maybe a little prettier along the way. And what happens? Aaron receives all of it and they'll sit down and it morphs into something that they give a primary place in their life. Well, this happens to us over and over and over again. Can it happen to you? Can you think of something that has taken this primary place? It's a secondary thing. It should be way down the list of priorities, and yet it has made its way up the list. Idolatry happens when that, when that occurs. Here's the other statement, another handle that we'll put on. This will be our definition, idolatry. Idolatry happens when something we give ourselves to 
eventually has some control over us. We see this in the video of the smartphone is funny, right? It's not funny though when it risks life and live. It's not funny though when it cuts you off relationally from other people. Of course, that's the example of the moment, but we can think of a dozen other examples. Paul addresses this in his letter to the Corinthians. He's talking about idolatry. He points people back to the Old Testament, but he also says it in a different way. He says it a couple different times in the letter he writes in 1 Corinthians. Here's how he says it. This is one of the places. It's in 1 Corinthians and another place. It's almost word for word, just like this. Paul begins to talk to the Corinthians about their habits and their lifestyle, and he's going to quote them to themselves. He's been there. He knows these people. And he knows what they say about their own behavior. And one of the things that they know for sure, and Paul probably taught them this as they became believers in Christ, is that they were free in Christ. They were not under the law anymore. And we know this is true because Jesus said it, right? Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free what? That's pretty free, isn't it? That's very free. Free indeed. He also says, if you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. And so the Corinthians knew about their freedom. And so they would say, when they were about to engage in some behavior that everyone knew they shouldn't be able to do, they would say, well, you know what, I can do that if I want. I'm allowed to do anything, they would say. And Paul quoted them to themselves. He said, that's true. You're allowed to do anything, but he also said this, but not everything is good for you. Be careful what you choose. And then he quotes him again. When you say I'm allowed to do anything, that's true. But then he says this, and say the last phrase with me. I must not become a slave to anything. This is how you know you're edging toward idolatry when you don't have a choice. When your thinking compels you in a direction and you feel like you are in slavery again. In bondage again. For some of you, that's happened with your smartphone, or food, or worry, or anxiety, or fear. I could just throw a list up, and you can pick one. These are a few things in our culture that we are tempted toward when it comes to idolatry. We can add to this list, but I bet there's something on this list that applies to you. Idolatry. What did we say about idolatry? It's when a good thing becomes a primary thing. What else did we say? Idolatry happens when there's something in our life that begins to take control over us. We're compelled. We have a compulsion. And so when we look at this list, and you can add a few things to it, You've probably drawn to one or more of these things that are maybe a habit or a part of your life, or maybe that have taken up residence in your heart. You've already spent a good amount of time talking about technology and how that can become idolatrous in our life. What about money? Money is a good thing. Think about what you couldn't do without money. But when money becomes the source of your security, then it becomes an idol. Idolatry. Worry and anxiety are the same way. I have friends that I'm concerned for. That concern, whether it's for them or for me, can turn into anxious thoughts and fear. 
whenever worry or anxiety or fear begins to go up, one thing is for sure. My trust in God is going down. It's waning every time. They're inextricably linked, and they're inversely proportional all the time. And so worry then becomes an idol to me. It's what wakes me up at 3 a.m. It's what causes me to wring my hands and fret. It could even cause me to make unethical choices if I'm not careful. When these things become idols, especially worry, anxiety, and fear, it's when I want to take control back over my life, and so I move God to the side. And in essence, what I'm saying is, I know that you say you know best, but I'm pretty sure in this situation I got to be. I know how this should go. And this is what I want. In fact, almost all idols have this one truth they call. I want what I want, and I want it now. And I want to wait, because my waiting is so dangerous and so difficult. And so you could pick something else on this list. And I'll probably beat you with certain gifts and abilities. And maybe you're using those in your career. Maybe you're using those in a way that you serve others in a vocation. And if you do, that's amazing because God created you that way. You're made in His image. But when your career becomes a source of your identity and your worth or value as a person, then it has become an idol. If your identity is centered around anything other than Christ and Christ alone, then you're going to find yourself operating by ego first and others second. And God is a distant third. In that regard, it becomes an idol. How many of you have Netflix? You have Netflix? How many binge watch? Like a binge watch? Yeah, I like a binge watch. Netflix has it perfect because you just hit play once. And then 12 hours later, you're still sitting there, right? I guess a good thing you put on a diaper, right? I mean, this is amazing. You got a whole season of whatever. And it's, you, you didn't have to think once about the difficulties in your marriage your rebellious kid, or why you're so unbelievably discontent, not once. And that's why entertainment is an idol. It's an anesthesia that keeps you from facing the things that God wants you to deal with. And as a result, you trust yourself and your failure. Idolatry always involves a substitute. This is what happened with the people of Israel. We don't know what's up with our God. Let's take one. We don't want to wait for Moses to come down. Let's take care of it right now. What can we do? I don't know. Let's melt some gold. Make a cow. We'll have church. This is what they do when you're waiting. It's a dangerous moment. And it always involves a substitute. You can have it now. You wait for the real thing. You can have it your way. You can allow God to work out his will in your life while you surrender to him patiently. That's how you know you're edging in idolatry. Gives us what we want right now. This is why God said the second commandment, this, you shall not make for yourself a criminal. You shall make no graven image if you remember the King James. And then he says, I am the Lord your God. Have first place in your life. Make this scene. Especially when you read the Old Testament in these portions of Exodus. It can seem that God is a bit of a, I don't know, a narcissist, an egomaniac. 
even said in Exodus 20 that he was a jealous God. Okay, well, he just wants me for him. But when you read the full context of Scripture, that's not the case at all. Because what God wants to do is to give you what is real and true and authentic and full of love instead of you settling for a substitute that is ineffective, that makes you empty every time. Remember, idolatry always includes a substitute for something that is real and lasting and authentic. And every command, every principle, every guide in Scripture comes from a heart of love for God. He can't do anything without loving you first. Everything He does is centered around and focused in on His love for you. And what He wants is for you to experience the very best of all that He has created. And His love declares that that's what He wants for you. And so when this comes from Him, He desires to give you what is real. And so what happens when we engage in idolatry, God comes to us and He says, I, I'd like to make a trade with you. I'd like for you to give up what is going to drive you crazy and leave you empty and make you find life meaningless. Would you give that up so that you can have what is real and lasting and authentic and true? This is always the case. This is why they had to destroy the calf. You can worship the calf if you want, but it's not going to do it for you. It's going to be a placebo that makes you think you have control. No, 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 no. God says, worship me, the one true God. This is always the case in Scripture. We trade what is worthless for what will last forever. This is why Jesus said, why would you forfeit your soul for the one thing that you can never earn on your own? This is why I want to give you. This is the trade that's always represented in Scripture. Here's a couple examples. Here's what Peter says. Peter writes his letter in the New Testament, and he says this, Give all your, what? Worries and cares to do. To God. For He cares for you. So when we give our worries and cares to God, it means that we trust Him with our life and all outcomes, and He gives us in place Peace. That's a pretty good trade. We give him all of our anxiety and all of our fear, and he gives us peace. And he gives us courage because we're not afraid anymore. This is the trade he wants to make with you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he has so much in store for you. Because he knows that you're tired of settling and taking a poor substitute for what is real and what will last. Because the meaning that you want, the significance that you desire, you're not going to find it in your job or in your marriage or in any other place. You're going to find it only in him. Here's the trade Jesus said he would make with us. He says this, And Jesus says, That same thing, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's the trade he wants to make. What do you bring? What do you bring to the table? You, will you bring weariness and heavy burdens? And what does he give you instead? Rest. Would you like some rest? Would you want real and lasting rest? 
even says in the very next verse, how to make this trade. He says, if you come to me, you, you can learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is the trade that he wants to make. God doesn't want us to not engage in idolatry because he's an angry, vengeful, jealous God. He wants to give up what is not real so that we can have what is authentic and that will be meaningful for us as we serve him and love him in ways that only we could ever imagine. This is the trade that you're invited to make. So let me ask you, this will be helpful as you engage in your week. If you had to name it today, what is it? What is it that causes you to lean toward idolatry? the opinions of other people, something on the screen that you saw before. Would you be willing to make the trade with God today? Lay it down. Read the seven Psalms. Search me, examine me, know me. See if there is anything in me that you find offensive. Well, God is so kind and so gentle that he'll bring this thing to mind for you so that you can set it down. Let me invite you to do that. Let's just bow you your arms, bow your heads, and close your eyes. Invite our worship team up as we prepare for communion. Lord, we confess, as, as strong as the word seems, and as stark as it can seem to us in our hearts, we confess that we are idolaters. We confess that we often take good things, gifts that you have given us, and we put them in primary places in our life. And so, Lord, just in your gentleness, in your gracious nature, would you call to mind just for each of us one of those things. While we wait, we find ourselves tempted in this direction. Say together.